A very warm welcome to the Voices from the Road podcast, episode number four, with me, Valerie Singleton. Next stop for this episode is 1978. It's late May. And motorcycling fans across the nation are making ready for the journey to the TT races on the Isle of Man, which I once filmed for a Blue Peter special assignment. Here they will cheer for their heroes, including Mike Hailwood, John Williams and Ian Richards. One such fan is John Henderson, who now recounts his own two-wheeled adventure that took him through the night from Reading to catch the ferry from Liverpool the following morning. I'm John Henderson from Froome, retired chemical engineer. Uh, we're talking about the TT races of uh, 1978 at the Isle of Man. Let's talk about the journey to the Isle of Man because it sounds like that was as eventful as the time you spent on the island. A nighttime motorbike journey from Reading to Liverpool. Um, tell us a bit about that because that can't have been very comfortable. <laughs> yes, I was uh, living in a place called Purley near Reading at the time and a friend of mine had a Triumph Trident 750 bike and I was the pillion passenger on that. We loaded up all our luggage onto the back and um, set off I think about seven or eight in the evening for Liverpool. Uh, we were due there to get the ferry um, about six o'clock the next morning I think. So we set off, there was a bit of a photo opportunity of the bike in the middle of Oxfordshire on some B road and then um, after dark we stopped uh, in the centre of Banbury at some dodgy cafe and there were a few other people there who were going the same way as us. Then once we got onto the M6 um, in the early hours we watched quite a few uh, motorbikes coming off the motorway into the services, got chatting to a few people there and then finally got into the centre of Liverpool about six o'clock in the morning, I think, and arrived at the ferry terminal and there was a huge queue, hundreds of bikes waiting for their fuel tanks to be pumped out because for safety reasons uh, in those days, the ferry couldn't accept motorbikes um, that were fuelled up. So there's you, a chemical engineer, watching petrol being pumped out of endless motorbike tanks into big drums, I suppose. Were you concerned about the safety of that? Well, not at the time. I mean, I was, it was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that in my life. So I was just looking forward to the, to the TT. Yeah, but these days the safety risk would have been horrendous with all that petrol going around. Anyway, so we got onto the ferry very tired by that point having um, journeyed through the night and we found a nice warm place on the ferry near the funnels um, and uh, got some chairs and fell asleep. Woke up a few hours later to find that we were covered in uh, diesel fumes, diesel soot from the funnel. So it took about two days to get that off I think in the end. I don't expect you had a very sympathetic landlady, did you? If you were at a and b you know, they used to ration bath times and that sort of thing, so it stuck. I don't remember, I don't remember any problem like that. Maybe, maybe uh, they were used to it um, when we got, finally got down to um, Port Erin on, on the island. And then we, we had a great week there, actually. The, I think the weather was quite good by some miracle. Quite often, I think, the Isle of Man, the weather's 
can be bad. But I think that that week in '78, it was pretty good weather. You were a photographer, correct? So tell us a bit about your your photographic experience and what you were hoping to achieve on the island. Well, very much uh, an amateur photographer, but um, I did have a bag full of um, camera. Well, one camera and thirty-five millimeter SLR with a load of lenses and filters and things, and. I wanted to get some shots off the back of the bike. I should just mention that there's a day called Mad Sunday uh, during that TT race week where the main road around the island becomes a one-way street the whole way around and all the TT fans get on their bikes and kind of show off a bit. Great photo opportunities, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was kind of I, I tried to rig the camera up pointing backwards and I think we might have got some shots like that but mainly it was me leaning around from the back of the bike trying to get some shots of people overtaking us so that was quite fun. Did you feel at all vulnerable I mean on the back of a bike twisting around and uh, trying to get those pictures? Not really I mean the trying trying quite a steady quite a steady bike and the friend of mine I was with was uh, was a pretty good uh, rider so I think I think we were all right I, th- I think actually these days you'd probably be a bit uh, you know I've seen people actually sat backwards on a bike with a camera <laughs> I'm glad I didn't have to do that because <laughs> you need to know where you're going I think just, let's just talk about the atmosphere then TT on the Isle of Man in in those days you know lots of enthusiasts were there what was the, uh, the spirit of, of the whole thing like? Oh, oh it was um, it, it was fantastic. I, um, there, there were lots of um, little pubs tucked away in places sort of in the countryside. That's what we preferred those rather than the busy bars in the towns. And um, that was like an almost like a fairy tale because you'd have some little pub tucked away in a village, but the entire street would be full of hundreds of bikes. And um, I, th- I think most people were fairly sensible about about drinking. Didn't see any accidents. I don't remember seeing any any crashes. There were some. I mean, we, you know, heard about it on the radio or newspapers. But I think most people were fairly sensible. We spent every day, we'd go to a different place on the island, ride out in the morning and then watch the races. There's that lovely bit at the summit, I can't remember what it's called, where the tram stop is right at the top. Did you get there? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's um, called the bungalow. Not quite sure why, but anyway, y- yes, that's, uh, that's where the railway to the summit of Snaefell crosses the main road, and um, that's, that's a really good place to, uh, to watch the races from. In clear weather, of course. <laughs> yeah, as I say, it, it was... Uh, it, it it was very clear, and um, the culmination of, of the week was um, the Formula One race that Mike Halewood was in, and um, Mike Halewood was a famous bike and car racer in the um, in in the early and mid 70s, but he'd been out of it for some reason. He I can't remember now, but it was the first bike race that he'd done for several years. 
so it was his comeback race and he won and um that was that was incredible we were right on the finish line for that and saw all the champagne and everything and um you know that made the national news that week have you been back since yeah yes actually um we did go back the following year wasn't so good for various reasons and I went back again about 10 years out, some about 87, 88. Um, by that time, I was looking more to the uh, comfort side of things. I actually lent, uh, by that time I had my own motorbike, but I lent it to a friend and I flew there. <laughs> I don't blame you. But, but it was that, uh, that first visit was um, was was the best in in all kinds of ways. John Henderson was talking to James Luckhurst about his journey to the 1978 TT races on the Isle of Man. Our last port of call this time is 1944. Somewhere on the Kent coast, a V1 doodlebug has come down onto the beach, but it hasn't exploded. It's the job of bomb disposal officers to make it safe, and once the fuses have been removed, they hand it to the care of RAF fireman Ronald Packer to get the thing winched onto a low loader and escort it to Knightsbridge Barracks in London, with a tonne of explosives still on board. Now 101 years old, Ronald recounts the challenge of finding somewhere in central London to park for the night, and the puzzled look from a government scientist when he demanded a receipt for the doodlebug the following morning. We were only four unit. We were officers. So it left in Tommy Fire. It was quite a small gentleman, very nice. Not like Tommy Fire, the boxers. One afternoon, he called me into the office. He said, I want you taking charge of one of our recovery units. He said, well, we want you to go because we understand you've had plenty of experience of bombs. I said, I've rolled off a few. He said, well, tomorrow morning we got coming down from London a special Canadian rain crane. Instead of a turret crane like the RAF, it is one of those big old ones with a cabot aside. You from Canada. He says, there's an unidentified object of dense marsh. They won, Doodlebug. It was the first one to land and not explode. What are you doing? I said, OK, that's all right, I don't worry. So the next day, they sent a staff car from London with a driver, and we went down to dense marsh and finished up in Littlestone on Sea because down there was a miniature railway. I met Bob Disposal Major and he said, I have taken the fuses out of the object so you've got nothing to worry about. But he said, you'll have to be careful with it because there's a ton of explosive in it. So we went in the beach and near this small, like an aircraft with an engine on top. We knew it was German because it was German colour. Their camouflage was a bluey-grey. The uh, crane got to work. I could see what they had along with because uh, this V1, Doodlebug, the 
gyroscopes must be faulty because it came up the Pebble Beach and of course the nose of it never touched the pebbles so it did explode. The crane managed to bring, get hold of it and take it off the pebbles of the little bit of road. There the fitters ringers got going, took the wheels off gradually and um, we put it on a, a low loader, which was known as a Queen Mary. When we had it loaded, the Major came, and he came with a, a truck with a big tarpaulin, went for school over the... Now he said, I've got sales orders for you, which is a great play buff up with Air Ministry of the Secret. And he opened it, he said, you have got to escort this ob- object, which is a fly, we knew what they were, t- to the Knightsbridge Barracks in London, where a major will receive you. Now he says, it's two o'clock in the afternoon, and none of you have it since half past eight. So he said, you've got the option, you can go back to Lim and get a meal there, or you can go up to Apador, where there's American anti-aircraft battery there, and he says, they will feed you if you want to. I said, yes, we're going to have a other the way up to London. So we went there, pulled in, and American, I pulled in, amazed, I don't know, came out and he he says, is that hard? I said, no, they've taken a few years out, but there's a ton of explosives with it. Oh, he said, you can't come in here. He said, you see that car park there? He said, you, you put it in the car park. So I told the driver to put the car park. We went, we went on a meal. It's the first time I've seen a metal tray with indents. One of the things I remember... We had a number of pork pie. Pork pie. <laughs> Interesting. Oh dear. <laughs> but what it puzzled us, we had a dollop with it of what we call, thought was jam. <laughs> anyway, after a lovely meal, we went on our way and we got up the nitrous barracks just before dark. And there I had to make this major, he come out, he, he said, that object, he said, I believe it's got explosive in it. And I said, yes, a ton. When he said, you can't leave it here, not in the barracks. We'll arrange for your driver to take it over in, in the park, Jake Park. I said, it can be parked by the serpentine and I arranged two of my men to guard it overnight. So I was given a nice meal at the sergeant's mess. Next morning, the major gave me another envelope with seal orders. He opened them. He said, you have got to now go to Harrow on the Hill. He did say where it was. And he said, you've got to take this to the house. So we started off, went to Harwan Hill. We found this big house and we drove in and partly 
They knew we were coming, and three or four boffins and boy coats came out with a pair of cutters, and they jumped on, and they were going to examine the fuselage. And I shouted them to stop. I said, that's still on my charge. I said, it's his work in the service. I said, until it's out my charge, you're not to touch that. I said, where's the, the CEO? He said, Professor, somebody in the office. So we went in the office. I told him what I bought. Uh, oh, good, he said. We're going out. I said, before you went, I want a receipt. <laughs> well, he said, we haven't got anything. I said, well, you got some note paper, haven't you? I said, yes, put receive one identical flying officer. And say it was who brought it to you. So he did that, and I took it. I so I went back out with him. I said okay, <laughs> and the staff carried the river back to London. The crew went back to London. Our boys went back to tents, and uh, before the staff car went to London, it took me back down to the unit. And uh, which was near Cadiz, but well, it was near Dover actually, Barham. And I went back, went up to the office, and thought, Tommy Farr, I said, Well, sir, I've delivered it, and here's a receipt. Oh, wonderful, he said. You got on very well, then. I said, Yes. He said, Thank you very much. Yes, obvious. Anyway, I thought, Well, that's that. And little later, I thanks. I got posted at the Far East. <laughs> that was nice, wasn't it? That was Ronald Packer remembering his extraordinary road journey to London with the V1 Doodlebug in 1944. And it brings us to the end of this latest episode in the Voices from the Road podcast. I'll be back next time with another selection from our podcast archive. But for now... From me, Valerie Singleton, it's goodbye.